1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Our guest today is Andrew Nicky Fork, and he is the author of a brand new book called Slick water, fracking and one insider's stand against the world's most powerful industry and it's the story of Jessica Ernst who is an Albertan uh, from Canada and she, the reason we know so much about her story and the reason that we know uh, the details of what has happened to her land and her life as a result of fracking is because she did not sign one of the many gag orders that other people who've been impacted by fracking have signed. um, And that took a lot of courage and a lot of sacrifice. And thanks to her sacrifice, we get to hear her story through this new book that Andrew has written. Andrew, I'm so glad that you could join us on Go Green Radio. Thanks for coming on today.
2: Well, my pleasure, Jill. Thank you.
0: Well, I'd like to set the stage for our listeners and talk a little bit about Jessica Ernst herself for a moment. She is no ordinary landowner with a suspicion that fracking is causing problems on her property. Her background working with the gas and oil industry, I think, is really important for our listeners to understand. So I'd like for you to talk to us a bit about her and how her education and her work history led up to... Um, the the situation we're going to talk about in a moment about the fracking on her land.
2: Yeah, Je- Jessica Ernst's uh, case is is quite unique uh, and 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 largely because of her background in the industry. So, I mean, she's worked for the oil and gas industry for more than 25 years. Um, she is a trained scientist, and so she's worked as an environmental consultant. <clears throat> and um, so, she or some of her major clients have included companies like Chevron uh, in Canada, which is uh, well, was at one time one of North America's largest uh, gas producers, uh, Murphy Oil. Um, as well as the great Canadian oil sands company um, and she she did all kinds of work in northern Alberta and northern British Columbia uh, she did work on wildlife impact assessments she did uh, assessments of uh, on pipeline crossings um, and she was known to be extremely meticulous judicious and got the job done Um and the, the other thing about Jessica Ernst, I think, that, that makes her unique is, is her scientific background, so she understands the science about what's going on, as well as she also knew the regulations. And, um, and she had an expectation that the, that the regu- regulations should be, uh, followed. And so when she was doing pipeline easements and assessments for other companies, <clears throat> she always consulted the regulations and said, look, these, you must abide by
0: well so and that, her, her, yeah, go right ahead, so, i'm sorry so
2: true, so she was a true insider, i guess in, in in this sense, I mean, she really knew the the industry inside out, so she, she you know so she didn't come from this being a an environmentalist or an activist or even being in some ways a naive landowner
0: mm-hmm. absolutely, and I think that's critical when we look at her later lawsuit and case, and we will be doing that in just a moment. But her story takes place in Alberta, Canada, and many of our listeners are Americans, and they may not be familiar with th- that area. So I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about uh, Alberta itself in terms of the role that oil and gas play in the economy of the province.
2: Well, it, it, the industry plays a huge role as as large and dominant um, as the industry plays in states like uh, Louisiana, Texas, Wyoming, or Alaska, um, so the government in in Alberta gets about thirty percent of its uh, of its revenue for running the government from um, from oil and gas activity uh, and so that that makes us very similar to a place like Louisiana. Um, although, I mean, most quite often we're just compared to Texas. I mean, we've had mm-hmm. more than 500,000 wells drilled. Um, it's very hard to travel anywhere in Alberta and, and, and not see the industry at work.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, in Alberta, are there laws in place that would require that citizens be informed if fracking is going to occur in their area? Give us some idea of what the normal procedure would be or should be, uh, according to regulations, before this type of energy extraction would take place.
2: Well, if we were, I mean, before the... uh, uh, the industry came into Jessica Ernst's backyard. Um there were virtually no regulations on on fracking. So and that was around 2004 when industry really started to to do an awful lot of shallow drilling of coal seams in central Alberta. Uh and at that point there were there were virtually no regulations. You could go frack and drill and um uh there uh you know and some of that has now changed as a consequence of this case and and other problems. That have happened. Uh, but there have been more, uh, close to 200,000 wells in, in Alberta have been fracked. Most of them were vertical fracks. And in the last 10 years, there have been thousands of, uh, of horizontal fracks where you're taking enormous amounts of water, chemicals and sand and injecting it, uh, at very high pressure into the ground. And then you, your, your well bore is slanting and traveling for another mile or two miles underground, uh, horizontally.
0: Mm -hmm. talk to us about the energy exploration that took place in jessica's town um it was described in your book in some ways as experimental unconventional describe this for us in detail for those of us who've only heard the word fracking but maybe not the details of what that means give us uh, some more detail there
2: okay well, one of the things that's really changed in the oil and gas industry in the last 20 years is that we've run out of, of cheap hydrocarbons. We've run out of the stuff that's easy to find and um, and fairly easy to access. So the great pools of oil and gas uh, that we used to tap into are largely gone. And so now, industry has been forced to to tackle uh, much more extreme and difficult uh, rock formations, uh, whether we're talking about shale or whether we're talking about coal. And so, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, um, industry really started to get more and more worried. They thought, you know, we're you know we're becoming more and more dependent on imports, and domestically we've run out of this cheap, easy stuff. Uh, and so, uh, there was all kinds of experimentation going on. With these so-called difficult or extreme uh, rock formations, which industry calls unconventional, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's not easy to get at. So we'll just call it unconventional. Mm-hmm. And then and then the, the 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 shale revolution was starting in uh, in Texas at the same time, um, and with Mitchell Energy doing uh, uh, some experimental fracs. And an industry, meanwhile, was also thought, okay, well, well, what about coal? I mean, we've got lots of coal in, the, in North America. Let's see if we can frack this coal and get it to release its methane, and uh, and see what that production is like. And so that happened in Alabama and Wyoming and Colorado, uh, and and there were problems in in all of those states with with enormous amount of uh, contamination of groundwater. Industry came to Alberta in 2004 and said, well, don't worry, we're not going to repeat the American experience. Everything will be fine. And the regulator gave them permission to do all kinds of experimental uh, fracks because each and every coal basin is different. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what kind of recipe you're going to need to to, to, to get it, to, to release it, the, the methane. um uh, so before Jessica Ernst really understood it or knew it, I mean, her whole community was being invaded by, in Canada, and a number of other com- uh, companies. And Canada, at, at this point, was still one of her major clients. And they were drilling like mad. And ranchers and farmers were saying, well, you know, why Why are these wells being drilled so closely together? Uh, you know, what's a nitrogen frack? Why are they, you know, what's going on here? Um, do we need to be concerned about our groundwater? And because Jessica worked in the industry, a lot of these queries went directly to her. She started asking some questions. And then, uh, when, when industry and, and the regulator, um, weren't terribly interested in giving her answers, um, she, she started to ask more and to dig into things. And at that point she realized that there, something had dramatically changed in her water. um, And her water was now extremely effervescent. In fact, a heavy oil geologist who was visiting her house one day for for dinner. And and Jessica Ernst lives just about an hour's drive north of Calgary in a river valley, a very pretty river valley. Um, And uh, he said, you know, Jess, there's something wrong with your water. Um, Either you've got CO2 or methane in it, you need to have it checked Sure enough, she did, and to her horror, she discovered that she had enough methane in her water that she could actually set it on fire, and Mm. that it was an explosive hazard in her house.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable, and when you say that, you know, these experiments, or that these, you know, new wells were experimental, was it sheerly because of the density of the wells that that was what was different what were in what ways was it experimental in, in Well it was experimental in,
2: the, in. it was experimental in the sense that in Cana and, and other companies weren't quite sure uh, what kind of fracture treatments they were going to need to crack open this this coal and to get it to release its methane
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, it, everyone knew that i mean they were described the formation as tight coal uh in other words this this formation was really hanging on to the methane and and they weren't sure what kind of fracture they would need so what do we need to inject uh uh do a slick water frac here or do we need to do a nitrogen frac here what's what's going to release this methane from the coal at what pressures do we and and at what depths do we need to do this so in Canada really experimented with all kinds of shallow fracs that we're below 200 meters, uh, which is extraordinary because that's all into the level of, of the basin level of, of groundwater. Uh, and they also several times, uh, uh, directly fracked in, into aquifer into aquifers, uh, in this coal formation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it, it, and, and industry was doing this to try to figure out how to get this formation to release its methane, but it was an experiment with all kinds of consequences. And as a result, they were they were fracking other into existing oil and gas wells in the area, and they were also fracking into groundwater.
0: Wow, help us understand how life changed in her small town. I mean, it wasn't just the water; there were other. Problems that no, arose. No, yes, yeah, there,
2: there were many, and I mean, life life changes in in any community that is being uh, intensively industrialized by hydraulic fracturing. So the first thing you begin to notice is the the enormous amount of traffic uh, to support the fracking crews, and so and and usually the, the the trucks are I mean big heavy machinery moving at very high speeds on on the highways. And so they're, they're really kicking the, uh, the hell out of, uh, out of the highways and also threatening public safety. Um, and so there were lots of concerns about the truck traffic. Then there were lots of concerns about the well density itself and the fragmentation of farmland. Um, in addition, there were concerns about uh, uh, pollution from, from the well sites, and um, Uh, and then there were, there were increasing concerns about, about groundwater and the lack of groundwater monitoring and what would happen to groundwater over time as a result of all this fracking hmm
0: well we're going to take a quick break this is all just breathtaking and i am anxious to hear more about what happened after jessica realized that her water um, was full of methane and and what happened with her neighbors we're going to talk about that in the next segment so don't go away folks we've got more go green radio right after this
1: news opinion your voice counts call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com take a wild guess how much garbage generated in the united states today is converted into energy is it 26 percent 43 percent or 14 percent
0: Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Andrew Nicky Fork. He's an award-winning author, and he has a brand-new book out called Slick Water, Fracking and One Insider's Stand Against the World's Most Powerful Industry. And as I was mentioning at the beginning of the last segment, this is the story of Jessica Ernst, who by any account was an industry insider, an environmental scientist who worked for um, actually one of the energy companies that she ended up suing who um, did a lot of fracking in her hometown. She knew um, the regulations. She knew what was supposed to happen when these types of energy exploration projects go on and she became quite the crusader um, when the energy industry regulators and the energy companies um, violated uh, people's rights and we are only able to know this and to know the details of her story that Andrew so carefully chronicles in his book because she was brave enough um, to not sign a gag order and we'll talk about what that means and how other people have had to do that um, so that all of us can see what happened um, when fracking went wrong in her area, and that it's certainly not an isolated incidence. Now, Andrew, you know, we talked in the first segment about how Alberta receives about 30% of its provincial revenue from the oil and gas industry. It's a very important part of the province's um, economy. But why did the both the government and the energy companies feel like the energy supply situation was so dire that they needed to capture gas in this highly experimental and sort of unknown way?
2: Well it had to i mean it, it was very much uh, an issue of 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 supply um, in the sense that a lot of people in industry felt that um, they were going to uh, that they were running out of of natural gas and that if they didn't find new sources very quickly that north america would be importing uh gas from places like uh, the middle east or africa and um and and so there was this huge push uh to uh, and, and and not just a just a push but it was also i mean this is Really significant desperation in in the industry. I mean, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, I mean we'd exhausted the cheap and easy stuff, and now we're hitting all these very, very hard and difficult and, and in many cases, just really poor formations um, and and where you have to use enormous amounts of energy uh, and capital and water over long periods of time to extract you know fewer and fewer resources. Mhm. And uh, but but what happened uh you know with the shale revolution when hydraulic fracturing, which is really, uh, you know, a, a, a brute force technology that that's in, in and that's an industry term where they're they're talking about, well, it's the application of brute force. And what has changed in the last couple of years with with uh, with, with fracturing is that we've just applied more brute force and, uh, and with the result that we can break up more rock over over longer areas um, underground um, resulted in a temporary um, uh, uh glut of natural gas production so we went from uh almost a, a shortage and very very high gas prices which drove all of this exploration and experiments to uh this period now where we've had this this uh, an enormous glut of natural gas now we're thinking about exporting it abroad but at the same time the the shale gas revolution is really beginning to to slow down um, because of the the rapid uh, rate at which these wells deplete, mm-hmm. so you you frack them and you spend a lot of money and you get you know a nice burst of gas for a year or two and then uh, and then your 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 well declines by eighty percent a year, which is really really significant. So mm-hmm. that this whole process of fracking rock only works uh, if you if you put the whole industry on a treadmill and it goes into debt and borrows more and more money to drill more and more, more wells. Um, and uh, But anyway, that was the driver for for all of this uh, about 10, 15 years ago.
0: Well, and it's incredible to me, I'm just going to editorialize here for just a second, that if what drove this shale quote-unquote revolution um, was a concern about lack of supply, and if we know that the that the wells don't last very long once we hit them, then it just seems insane to me that we would allow any of that supply to be exported. (laughs) It kind of goes against, you know, what we were trying to accomplish in the first place, which was an ample domestic supply. It seems like instead of exporting it, we would hold on to it for as long as we could uh, if we know that there's this incredible diminishing return on the wells that we drill. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but to me, that just well, seems ridiculous.
2: It, well, and there are some very well-known energy analysts in the United States who have also questioned um, that that thinking. I'm thinking of uh, Art Berman in, in, in Houston, who's probably one of the most reliably and consistently accurate analysts, and Dave Hughes as well, and they've said, look, okay, the, what this resource is telling us is that we really need to start planning how where we 're going to go in the future with energy um, uh, because the shale revolution is more like a almost a retirement party, as Art Berman would put it for the natural gas industry mm-hmm. um, and, it, and, and and just the these depletion rates are uh, a real warning that okay let's let 's start conserving this gas. Let's let's spend it much more smartly than we are now, mm-hmm. and and let's prepare for a future where we're going to have to make some kind of transition to other kinds of of, of low carbon fuels, and that will be a mm-hmm. difficult process. And um, and unfortunately, that that that's not the message that we're, that's really getting through yet. So
0: right, and it's kind of like you know we've had oil reserves, which by the way are greatly depleted, but you know we have other reserves that as a nation we decide we need to hold these you know resources back for a rainy day I, I just don't get it i don't know why we wouldn't do the same but at any rate let's get back to jessica ernst um so her water supply she finds there's methane in it and we know both from your book and from other you know accounts that whenever industry is faced with somebody saying oh my gosh i can light my you know my tap water on fire they will say that happens naturally methane you know it happens it gets in there it's not because of industry but Jessica's water was actually tested by the energy company before fracking took place and there were no traces of gas found and I want you to talk about how crucial that fact is in her case and also how unusual it is that you know water is tested before the fracking begins
2: that's a really good point. Um, and, and again, it, it, it what makes this, this case so important is that um, Jessica Ernst has the evidence that, um, that, that prior to uh, shallow fracking of coal seams around her, her community, her water was fine and uh, had actually been tested uh, two or three times and each time the test had come back saying, gas present? No. Very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and and so being a scientist she also looked into this because when industry and the regulator said well Jessica you know uh, this is all it's it's very natural to find uh, uh methane in in groundwater in uh, in 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 areas that are being drilled for natural gas so she tried to check all this out and she found that um that what industry was saying wasn't actually true um and and that in most places um um uh you know uh particularly with with a, a coal seam like the Horseshoe Canyon basin this was a, this was a coal seam that didn't give up its methane very easily, and the methane stuck to the coals, and so there was not a lot of methane in ground groundwater uh, naturally. There were in some areas, but 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 not very much, and at very very small amounts. So I mean, what what Jessica Ernst found in her water was you know at, at one point was thirty to sixty milligrams per liter, which is an extraordinary amount of methane. That's a, and that's explosive. And, and, and really in most areas, even in the United States where, where people have found contamination, and we're talking about 5, 10, 15 milligrams. And here she had this just an extraordinary amount. And so she looked through the science and what she found was this, is that in, in areas that had had no oil and gas drilling, you found very little amounts of, of methane in groundwater. And after that area had been drilled, and the density had increased fantastically. Um, more and more people began to find uh, methane in their groundwater as a result for, from leaks from from all of these well bores. Mm-hmm. And and so that was the truism that she did find, and that's what scientists have found consistently throughout North America, where industry has gone into old fields and and conducted a lot of hydraulic fracturing, that they've really Set an awful lot of methane on the move, and it has migrated into aquifers, it's migrated into other well bores, and it's also migrated uh, straight into the atmosphere.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's another issue. Uh, methane is at least 21 times a more potent greenhouse gas emission than co2 we talk about carbon a lot you know you hear that and every time there's a a global meeting on climate change everybody's talking about reducing co2 but methane is is even more potent in terms of its ability to trap um you know heating gases and and what have you and um you know, here we have all this methane escaping into the atmosphere as a result of um, this shale revolution. And um, from what you said in your book, there's no inventory going on um, to track that.
2: No, there isn't. And, and you know, what Jessica Ernst discovered, uh, um, because she's a scientist and she's just started to to do all kinds of reading... Um, on on methane and 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 leaks from from well bores, i mean she actually i mean she discovered at a certain point that you know the the industry um, uh, was was going to these these very obscure at this point in time uh, global meetings where they would discuss the issue of well integrity, and she thought, well what does that mean what were they talking about and so what they were talking about. Was was uh, a multi-billion-dollar liability that the industry had created before they began uh, their extensive um, hydraulic fracturing with horizontal well bores, and um, and that problem was immense. And it, and and it really boiled down to this: that that um, you know that there I think there are close to five million well bores that have been drilled in North America in the last one hundred years. And almost all of them are leaking to some degree, <laughs> and what has happened with hydraulic fracturing is that you know it, it, and it, it's a it 's a seismic like activity i mean you are shaking the uh, the ground uh, um, and creating small earthquakes and in some cases uh, very large ones mm-hmm. that could actually be felt on the surface. And and all of this shaking and rattling of the ground is is rattling all of the existing plumbing on the landscape. So you're taking these old well bores and you're clanking them and and and, uh, and really challenging them with this technology, with the result that you're you're aggravating the, the you know the, the leaks that are already there. Mm-hmm. and And that is you know, and, and when Jessica Ernst realized that, um, and she actually put together her own uh, a paper on this very issue, um, uh, and she's got her own website where she's putting all this information up, But she thought, okay, now she could understand why government and industry were always coming back to her and saying, "Look, it's all natural,
1: mm-hmm. because
2: that was the line that that industry and government were were using to downplay. This enormous liability that was already existing, and that wow. that is being made worse by a hydraulic fracturing.
0: Wow, boy! I hate to stop you there, but we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we'll have much, much more with Andrew and his book Slick Water. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News, News. opinion, News. News. opinion. stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspiring really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're listening to go green radio with your host jill buck
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all be with us and very happy to have our guest today, Andrew Nicky Fork, who has just released a brand new book called Slick Water, and it's the story of Jessica Ernst, Um, and it's fascinating. It talks about in great detail what happened um, in her community and on her land when Um, a glut of hydraulic fracturing as we know it uh, as fracking happened in her community what some of the impacts were and what she went through to try and get the problems resolved. Um, Andrew if you would talk to us about what happened when Jessica communicated her problems she knew that there was an incredible amount of methane Um, In her drinking water, Um, she went to both the energy company that was fracking in her town. She went to the regulatory agency in whom she had a lot of trust at that point. Um, They were charged with enforcing the laws pertaining to the industry. Spend some time talking to us about how each of these two entities reacted to Jessica's grievances.
2: Well, they did not react very well um, and largely... um i mean i mean it's a, this is, i mean this is where the story really becomes quite dramatic and mm-hmm. and almost unbelievable so is a very persistent person and very meticulous and very precise and she reviewed all of the regulations and she quickly realized that what had happened in Rosebud and has happened in in other places um, was that the company had directly fracked into an aquifer and as a result there had been gross groundwater contamination with methane, uh, and she realized she looked at all the, the reg- regulations, and she said, "You know, there's a law that actually says you cannot frack into a fresh water supply, and there's also a law that says if you do that, that you have to address landowners' concerns." Um, these laws, by the way, have been taken off the books in the last uh, couple of years. Hmm. Um, so she she pressed on these issues, and and, and as a result. Uh, well, the, the energy regulator came back and said, "You know, Jess, uh, uh, we don't want to deal with you. We actually think you're a criminal threat uh, and a security threat to our organization, and so we're instructing all of our personnel not to ha- not to communicate with you." And she was absolutely stunned. And uh, and uh, uh, and six months later, in uh, in a taped conversation with the lawyer representing the board. She learned why, and the board told her, the, the lawyer actually told her up front, he said, look, Jess, we never considered you a security threat, but you publicly humiliated us by pointing out that we weren't capable of responding to these concerns that you had raised, um, and that is why we banished you. And And she realized at this point, okay, well, that, that the regulator was not going to to, to address the issues that she had raised. And then, of course, she went to the government because we've got two authorities in Alberta who are responsible for groundwater, which means that nobody is responsible for groundwater. <laughs> and so that's the Alberta Energy Regulator and, and Alberta Environment. And to this day, Alberta Environment does not have a protocol for investigating groundwater contamination related to oil and gas activity and 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 that 's because the government doesn 't want to find anything and be liable um, and that 's also because there have been hundreds of people have lost their groundwater in Alberta, mm-hmm. just as hundreds have lost their groundwater in Pennsylvania and Texas and Wyoming and Colorado um, so she documented the fact that their investigation was was uh, groundwater investigation was totally bogus inadequate and and completely unscientific. And then she raised more and more questions. Um and so then, you know, the, the the response of industry and government was to uh was to try to discredit her. Uh they tried to portray her as some kind of crazy woman. Um the um uh at one point the federal police, their anti terrorist squad, visited her farm oh, unannounced. Oh my gosh. Uh, and said, uh, you know, Jess, uh, we've got some questions for you. Um, and at this point, there was actually uh, a bombing campaign taking place against uh, in Canada, in northern British Columbia, in response to hydraulic fracturing. And uh, there were about five pipe bombs had been set off on facilities, and uh, and there were hundreds of, of of federal police were involved in the investigation. And so, you know, Jessica Ernst lived uh, nearly uh, 1,500 kilometers away from this activity, and they were somehow suggesting that she might be involved, and she oh started to laugh. Goodness. She said, you know, uh, no way. And, and then they asked her, well, what about, we really would like to know the names of all the farmers and ranchers that have called you over the years so that we could talk to them. And Jessica said, no, you're, you're not getting that information. And um, and in the end, they they left uh, somewhat apologetic uh, uh, and, and realizing that, you know, that they had been sent on a mission really to harass and intimidate a citizen who was merely asking uh, that her government and her regulator be accountable for their actions and that they uphold the law of the land that they were charged to uphold.
0: mhm yeah.
2: And at that point, she realized, okay, I'm going to have to sue these people if I'm going to to get any justice. And that lawsuit um, has now lasted 10 years in the courts. And she has not yet even had the opportunity to present any evidence in court, which is extraordinary.
0: It is extraordinary. And now talk to us about exactly who she sued and what she sued for. Talk to us about the particulars.
2: Well, she, she sued three parties. She sued the Alberta government, in particular Alberta environment. She sued the energy regulator, which is now known as the Alberta energy regulator and would be you know uh, that would be the equivalent of an uh, oil and gas commission, and let's say in in in, in Colorado or Wyoming. And then she sued um, in Cana, which is the company that that was uh, poking all the holes in the ground around Rosebud, and um, uh, and she sued them all for negligence um, and uh, and for breaking the law. And she also sued the energy regulator for violating her constitutional rights. By falsely branding her as a security threat, and then banishing all communication with her at a point when she had just discovered that she had explosive uh, quantities of methane in her groundwater mm-hmm. and um, so the the courts have said over time that yes, you can sue the government yes uh, so that will proceed. Yes, you can sue the company, um, and the company had no objection to to the lawsuit. Um, and, uh, but no, you can't sue the regulator, uh, Jessica Ernst, because they have an immunity clause which excludes them from any civil action. Uh, and Jessica Ernst thought, well, you know, that, that, uh, that doesn't sound right to me. They're the most guilty party, and, um, and they violated my constitutional rights. Um, so she sat down with her lawyers and, and, and made the point, look, I don't think this immunity clause um, uh, allows a regulator to violate an individual's constitutional rights and, and, and lie about them um, while allowing industry activity that also contaminates their groundwater. Yeah. And uh, so she's now taken that very issue to the Supreme Court of Canada where it will be heard in January and February of this year. Now, you've got to understand this. I mean, so Jessica Ernst is is an incredibly uh, um, uh, prudent individual in the sense that, I mean, she she made good money in the oil patch, as most people do, but she saved that money. And so she has now spent $350,000 of her savings to keep this lawsuit going. And, um, and, uh, and, and she's absolutely determined um, to get all of the facts on the public record, and mm-hmm. she figures the only way she can do that is by, 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 by not giving up and uh, soldiering on.
0: Well, and she is unique because in many cases you know when people's uh, drinking water has been contaminated they they lose their you know if they're ranchers they lose their lose their livestock uh, their land becomes a health threat to their families and oftentimes the energy companies will come in and say you know we're we're not going to say it's our fault, but we'll pay you a huge amount of money to relocate you but in exchange for that, um, so that you can go and live in a place where, you know, it's healthier for for you, um, you can't talk about this. And your children can't talk about this. And they sign these gag orders, essentially, um, and then the public never knows um, what happened there. And, and because of that, it can be misleading to the public in thinking that there are actually very few cases in which landowners have had problems due to fracking on their land when in essence uh it's much more common than we realize. talk to us a little bit about you know just how um how frequent a situation like Jessica's actually is
2: yeah no, this this is one of the really extraordinary uh, issues about about this the this use of technology and the use of confidentiality agreements to cover up problems with with this technology and it goes uh, back a long long ways and in fact it was probably first documented by the federal government of the United States in 1987 the Environmental Protection Agency put out a report where they clearly documented that fracking had uh, contaminated groundwater in 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 West Virginia and they said you know we don't know what the scale of this problem is because of all these confidentiality agreements. And um, and so the way it, it, it worked and, and has worked for a long, long time is very similar to what the Catholic Church did in Boston in the 1980s and 1990s to cover up the abuse at pedophile priests. So a child would be abused. The Church would then approach the family uh, and say, well, uh, here's a check. Uh, but we'd like you to sign a confidentiality agreement um, uh, a non disclosure agreement and then uh the family would do so uh the there would be no record of the incident and uh except in in secret uh, uh, church quarters and then the priest would be reassigned to another parish and the bishop would would cover up this, the same way that uh, uh, and, uh, uh Many regu- energy regulators have had done, and uh, and in the end, there you know everyone walks away being able to say uh, that this technology is okay. There's no problems with it, and the cycle of abuse goes on. And and this is what absolutely horrified Jessica Ernst when she realized that this was the system that had been set up to allow this technology to go, to be used in one rural community after another where one family after another loses their groundwater or has had other damages uh, caused to them by this technology. The industry swiftly steps in with with a check and often not a lot of money. Uh, Then comes the confidentiality agreement. Um, And I know that I've talked to lawyers in Alberta and hundreds of these agreements have been signed. Um, and, and then there's the regulator can loves this because they can say, well, there's no problems. We, we, we don't have anything to regulate here because there's no record of, of any damage. And, and then the cycle of abuse goes on. And and what, why Jessica Ernst found this so disturbing was because she was the victim of sexual abuse as a child and she understood this cycle of abuse and, and the problem um, with with the science, with being silent about it, and 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 with the abusers coming to the abused and saying, "Here's some money, shut up, don't say another word," and and then they get away um, with abuse. And she said, "You know, I, I as a child there was nothing I could do uh, about what happened to me, but as an adult, I am not going to allow this process to continue." and and it's been for her i think a really powerful power powerful motivator to 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 keep her going uh because i i can't think of too many people i've ever met in my life who would have the strength endurance and courage to go through a 10 year long lawsuit with no end in sight um uh, but, but so, but here motivated very powerfully by the idea that she will not participate in a cycle of abuse and that she will end it.
0: Well, and I think what's so incredible too is that despite being let down by her government, she has such a strong sense of justice and belief in, you know, what a democratic society should be, um, that she's willing, to To sacrifice so much, I mean truly her life and her well being um, and her paycheck i mean she know she's things
2: she has not worked for the industry since uh, two thousand and eleven I mean she 's had not one yeah. contract from the industry since that time right. and and she 's paid dearly for this i mean at, at, at first, her community thought of her really as you know Jess, why are you going on about this why don 't you just sort of shut up? Um, there were a lot of farmers in, in, in the area who were very concerned that uh, that uh, Jessica Ernst's outspokenness would drive the industry away, and they were very dependent at this point in time on energy leases to keep their farms going, and so uh, she she received very many threatening phone calls, uh, very many threatening visits from people saying, just, just stop. Um, her community at the time, uh, Rosebud also was, was very famous for having a theater. It still is. Uh, and 40,000 people come to this rural theater to hear all kinds of incredible plays and in Canna granted the theater some money. And as a result, you know, members of the theater were coming to her and saying, Jessica, just please shut up. I mean, you're, you're, uh, don't put our funding at risk. And, and, um, and so then she she actually withdrew for a period of years from the community. And what's really interesting is that over time, as her lawsuit has slowly progressed through the courts, her community has come back and really supported her in a big way. And so they'll make donations of food, they'll make donations of clothes to her. Um, uh, and I think one of the proudest days and, and and joyous days in her life was walking into court in Drumheller, Alberta, and finding, you know, 10 to 15 members of her community from Rosebud uh, sitting there supporting her in court. And this community now has has also signed a, a petition that has gone to the Supreme Court of Canada saying we fully support Jessica Ernst and her case. Oh, and, well, that's good. Um, That's an extraordinary development, too.
0: You know, one of the things that, um, you know, because Jessica is so well-versed in you know, how to make uh, oil and gas industry uh, operations safe or at least transparent to the community. That was part of her job. Um, she knew and, and even outlined some of the steps that the industry could have taken prior to fracking to ensure public safety and protection of their water supplies. Um, and I, I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the things that, the industry and regulators could have done to properly monitor the impact of fracking and hence readily detect any problems in the water supply if they occurred and you know i mean this is something if fracking is still going on in many areas of north america you know these this checklist of things that could be done that jessica outlined for them um, really ought to be considered um, i think before communities embrace the easy money that Fracking brings to a community. Talk to us about that.
2: Um, that's a really good question, um, and I, I think we should start with the fact that uh, there were three major issues that have been identified with hydraulic fracturing in the in in the in, in, in the petroleum science journals. And and they the first is is that it, you can't control the fractures um, underground, and that. Quite often, they will go into water, so that was well known, and and that's been a big issue with fracking since the 1950s. The second thing was that um, is that you know fracking can cause earthquakes and seismic activity, and this had also been well documented. And the problem with that is that this shaking of the ground uh allows other gases to migrate and move whether it's methane co2 or 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 to radon on radon and um, and and the third issue is that the that fracking um, just doesn't can't go into to water but can go into other zones other formations and uh, other oil and and gas wells and and, and create problems so um, so those three things were all well known before the industry really took off about 10, 15 years ago. So what should have happened and did not happen in any community that I could find in North America and and what Jessica Ernst uh, has has recommended because this is what she she did as an environmental consultant was do cumulative impact stuff, and so she would say, okay, so how is this industry going to impact the community over time? So you you need to start with some baselines, and you need to to check your groundwater, and uh, and establish uh, what kind of chemicals are in it, what kind of gases are in it and And you need to do that that testing at the same time, you also need to do testing for your existing oil and gas wells because you know that the technology is going to rattle the the existing plumbing and it's going to cause uh, uh, gas to migrate so you need to know you need to have you need to take isotopic fingerprints of of the 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 gases that are are um uh, that that are being extracted from these existing uh, formations so that you can mix and match uh, uh and actually uh follow uh contamination and um then you also need to to uh to take a look at the land and what's going to happen with high well, density drilling, how much land are you going to fragment? How much land will be disturbed? What will be the impact on on farms? What will be the impact on public roads? Um, I mean this industry has damaged billions of dollars of public roads mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, they 've damaged more public roads than than the the counties and municipalities have ever received in in taxes from from this industry. I mean Texas is a great example of this. Where you know nearly a billion dollars worth of road damage, and yet what, what it twenty seven in one county alone. When when uh, when you add up all the the twenty seven counties that are all being fracked in Texas, I mean they earned less than uh, three hundred or four hundred million dollars directly from from the industry. So wow. the, the, the you know the benefits uh, uh, never even closely amounted. To the full cost of, of the industry, mm-hmm. so doing these prop, this proper planning from the very beginning would have uh, indicated, uh, uh, you know, would would have told both industry and government that all right, there's this industry is very costly, this industry is going to leave a huge footprint. Uh, this industry is going to contaminate groundwater. There's no questions about that. This industry is going to fragment farming communities and landscapes. Um, this industry will have an impact on public roads. This industry will also have an impact on air quality. And and, and so had we done those studies, uh, uh, would we have done the amount of fracking that we have now done in North America? It's unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Many Absolutely. communities would have said, no way. This is, this is not worth it. We need to start doing things differently here and tackle other energy sources. Mm-hmm. And that, frankly, Absolutely. was why those cumulative impact assessments just simply never took place. <laughs>
0: Well, and it was probably something that you know was absolutely predictable before the studies even had to be done, which is why they never were done, <laughs> because right. the regulators yep. and the industry knew that would happen. Andrew, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, to the extent we even skipped a commercial break um, to to let you keep going, this was a great interview, and I really appreciate having you on. I really appreciate Jessica Ernst and what she's done, and I really encourage our listeners to get out there and look for slick water andrew's brand new book Uh, it's a page turner and if you are interested in what the human impact of fracking is you do not want to miss a single chapter of this book thank you so much for joining us andrew to our listeners we'll be here same time same place next week with more go green radio and until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green